Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files. I, I like straight talking. I think transparency is important and authenticity is important. And I never love corporate speak. So I think it's important just to say say how things are. Jane Frazier, she's the CEO of Citigroup Latin America and the woman who helped rebuild Citi's reputation following the financial crisis while she was running Citi Mortgage. She's among the top-ranking women on Wall Street, and some are eyeing her for the top post at Citi one day. I look forward to seeing a woman being the first CEO of a Wall Street firm, um, whoever that may be. I never had the ambition to be the CEO of the of City or of any other organization. Um, things can change over time, but at the moment, I've, I've still got a lot to learn. Plus, how she got promoted while she was on maternity leave and why her husband pulled back from his career to focus on their children and the judgment he faced from others as a result. Also, the leadership lesson she learned from her then 11-year-old son. I sat down with Jane Frazier at Fortune's Most Powerful Women Summit. Jane Frazier, it is so nice to have you here. Thank you for being here. Oh, I'm thrilled. A real pleasure. It's been a few years since we last sat down in New York, and you had a completely different job. Now you have moved to Miami, you're loving the sun, and you're running a huge part of the bank. I mean, all of, all of Latin America. What's it like? I, I have to say, it's a new learning experience. It's not intuitively obvious to have a woman from Scotland running Latin America it's for an American not, bank. You don't say. <laughs> um, my husband's Cuban, and okay. I, I learned Spanish on a trading floor in Madrid you know, in the Middle Ages, 30 years ago. So uh, it, it's been dusting off the Spanish. Okay. It's been uh, you know, relearning a lot about Latin America again. And there's 23 countries. Yeah. So there's a huge diversity there. It's, it's a wonderful learning opportunity. You have been described as a straight-talking, strategic problem solver. Do you like that description? How does that sit with you? Well, my, my 17 and 15-year-old sons would probably give you a slightly different version of that one. <laughs> um, I, I like straight-talking. I think transparency is important and authenticity is important. Mm-hmm. And I never love corporate speak. So I think it's important just to say, say how things are. Do you think that women executives who speak in that fashion, very straightforward, very matter of fact, are judged differently sometimes? I, I find I do it with empathy. Um, I've had to transform and turn around a lot of different things, a lot of different businesses. And I always imagine myself as the other side of the audience and how would I like to hear things. And so I have learned the courage to talk straight. But if you do it with empathy, you, know, you, you can be a straight talker without being an unpleasant person. You ran the mortgage business uh, at, at City, and you were in the midst of dealing with the fallout from the financial crisis. So therein comes the lesson of dealing, dealing with those very difficult situations. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. 
Do you think, because you have been called the number one woman to watch for consecutive years uh, by American Banker, it has a lot of people wondering, murmuring, whether you may be the first woman to be CEO of a major American bank, a major Wall Street bank. You are smiling. People can't see your smile on this podcast. But... Um, I'm, a, I'm a Brit, so as, as soon as I get embarrassed about something, I smile, Poppy. Um, I, look, there is a huge amount of talent, and there's some tremendous women and men mm-hmm. um, who I think are a different style of leader these days on Wall Street, and I think that's been necessary. Uh, so I think the piece that's most exciting out there is the fact that we've got a different generation running banks um, who I think have a mu- are much more in tune with what's going on. And I look forward to seeing a woman being the first CEO of a Wall Street firm, um, whoever that may be. And you said you don't like corporate speak. And so I will just push back a little bit on that and say, okay, I take that answer. But I ask you, is it a dream? Is it a goal one day? either CEO of Citi or CEO of one of the other big banks to break that proverbial glass ceiling, but also because you know you could do it. I do feel I'm running a business and running a bank today. I have um, the privilege of running the National Bank of Mexico with my colleagues down in Mexico and you know, a, a very large organization. And sometimes it's, it is much more fun to be able to run a division of a business because it's, it's not the same limelight as it is when you're running a public organization. I never had the ambition to be the CEO of the of City or of any other organization. Um, things can change over time, but at the moment, I've, I've still got a lot to learn. Should we say, leave that at a maybe? A maybe and move on? That's, that's what I'm hearing here, so we will see. Uh, let's talk about Latin America, and then let's move on to, to big picture here and your role and your trajectory to this role. Mexico, the largest market outside of the U.S. for city in terms of revenue, 10% of annual revenue. What's that market like right now? There are great opportunities, also challenges. What's it like? It's a fascinating market because it's one which is relatively underdeveloped. You've got a very, very young population and and a rapidly growing middle class, which is exciting to see in any situation because it is a country moving forward. And then you've also got in the financial services very low penetration of credit, of wealth management, asset management products and the like. And only 50% of the population are banked. And so there's a very critical role for a bank to play in helping really get inclusive growth in Mexico. How do we not make the mistakes that have happened elsewhere? And how do we get as much of that population participating in the growth of the country as possible? But there's also uncertainties. Yeah. I mean, there have also been challenges, right? Uh, Cities Mexico Arm has faced questions about anti-money laundering practices. You guys paid $140 million settlement around the issue a few years ago. How do you tackle that? Because it, that comes down to really a trust issue. Very much so. Um, and earning trust back when you have had a problem has get done the good old-fashioned way. It's customer by customer, it's employee by employee. It, you, earn, you earn trust the hard way, and you can't fast-forward that. So a lot of what we focused on in Mexico is how do we focus on being the best, not the biggest? Um, how do we focus on our customer experience, and what can we do to really modernize the bank around, around the customer, around the client? Because you've talked about trying to, as you've taken this over, Jane, after your experience in sort of the post-financial crisis mortgage meltdown, a, a culture of openness, 
and ethical behavior, one, especially where employees from the lowest level on up feel like they are empowered to bring concerns and ethical issues to the top. Uh, is that something that when you came in you saw was not happening and you needed to change? That's, it was already in the process of really amplifying um, the people's comfort in escalating an issue. Uh, often the fear that comes in that stops someone escalating an issue is they're worried what their boss will say, they're worried if there's going to be ramifications or repercussions for them, even from co-workers judging them. Mm. So you've got to create a very different culture um, that people trust to be able to uh, escalate a concern they may have and also trust that someone's going to do something about it. So I, that's something that City and I think all banks have been working on hard since the crisis. In Mexico, it was a little harder because you didn't have an environment of crisis that was going on. We'd had an issue in the bank, and what we've had to do is tackle it in an environment where there isn't the same mm. um, support, as it were, for major change. That's interesting. And we have to set, we've had to set the standard ourselves. You uh, are very candid about how rare it is to be a woman in your position in banking in Latin America. You're the only woman on a number of boards that you sit on in Latin America. And one thing you've said is, quote, there is no point in trying to out machismo the men in senior management. I can also be feminine, tough, and I'll use that as a strength. Really? Yes. Like? So when I first was put in charge of uh, Latin America, there were some pretty negative headlines in the press in Mexico about having a, having a female and a foreigner with the responsibility. And this was seen as a bit of an insult in Mexico. The, wait, actual newspapers yes. wrote about you being a female and a foreigner. Um, and with that, you have to understand why. Uh, so my husband took me out. Um, he said, we're going to buy an elegant red dress, slightly higher heels than you're used to. You're getting a haircut and you're going to stride on the stage. And it's funny, those, those things work. Like be um, as fem- what was his point? Be as feminine as possible? Yeah. Well, no, he looked at what would make me comfortable. Um, and he knew that if I, if I could stride on there and be quite comfortable confident. in who I am and confident around that and transmitting something that was, I am who I am, mm. um, that that would also, that would be a benefit. Frankly, it's been a huge benefit, Poppy, because... It is, there aren't that many women around. Um, and so a lot of the women want you to succeed and they want to help you succeed in the organization. And over 50% of the people in the in, in city of Banamex are women. And so you know, they're kind of cheering you on, which is very nice. And the other piece is you have a different style and diversity does make a difference. A big difference. And so yes, no, don't point, no point out localing locals, be yourself. You've talked about the importance to you of bringing more women into senior management roles at the bank across the region. How's that going? Great. Um, it's, uh, I give you an example. We have this phenomenal Chinese woman who I've, I started working with 14 years ago and I started at City. She arrived in Mexico, does not speak Spanish to run Strashy um, for all of Latin America, eight months pregnant, mm. first child. Good for her. And um, we put her on the stage uh, in front of all the women in, uh, in Mexico City. And we said, so, <laughs> why? 
Um, and it's creating positive role models. Um, and there's a lot of, we've got a lot of women that have moved in. It's not a gender thing, it's about diversity. We've also brought in people from different countries, we've brought in people from different industries. So it's, uh, it, I've learned it's about diversity, it's not just gender. This comes at a time, on the gender note though, when there is a vacuum of female leadership in the region. I mean, you have Chilean President Michelle Bachelet stepping down. She's the last female president in the region. I mean, you, you had not long ago, 2015-3, Brazil, Argentina, Chile. What does that mean in terms of not having that representation in government in the region? We've, what I'm seeing actually is a public sector doing a better job than the private sector, ironically. So when you go and present in panels or you sit on different conferences and the like, there is almost always strong female ministers and representation mm. from almost every single country. Um, what you don't see is in the audience of the business community the mm. same in terms of the executives. So actually, I think it's the private sector that has a way to run more than the public sector. That needs to stand up yes. more and do that. And help the next generation through, um, because I think that's really the critical piece of how do we help the next generation of women have the confidence um, that you can have a family, that you can work, mm -hmm. um, and to have some of the, some of the different hang-ups we've all had coming through, how do they get over them? Well, and getting past those headlines, I mean, that was two years ago that you came in and faced those headlines. Do you, th from these newspapers, do you think that that would happen today? Uh, it might well do, yes. Yeah. Yes. That's disappointing. A few years ago when you came in, you made a, a difficult, I'm assuming a difficult decision to discontinue retail and consumer banking in a number of the big markets in Argentina and Brazil and Colombia. Um, you know, Buenos Aires was the first overseas branch of any, any U.S. bank. That dates back to 1914 for you guys. Why exit those markets? What was the strategy? Oh, we were we didn't exit the markets. We or only exited the, the we only exited the retail bank in them. Um, it's it's the dynamics of the industry in the in the corporate investment banking world. Uh, we're the only global bank in Latin America. Mm -hmm. We're in twenty three countries. Nearest banks in competitive wise is in eleven. So we really have all, we have a wonderful position there where we can grow, where we can help the clients because we've got something that's unique. In the retail banking world, with the digital explosion that's happening, you have to put a huge amount of investment um, into transforming these franchises. It's very intensive and it's not just money, it's a lot of management expertise as well. There's only so many you can do that in. And at the same time, we were subscale in a lot of markets. After the crisis, US banks aren't allowed to acquire other banks. So we watched the local banks rolling up. Uh, there are retail banking franchises and consolidating. Um, we grew, but nothing like as fast as you could inorganically. So it it was a tough decision from a history point of view, but it was a very, a relatively easy one from a strategic point of view because we needed to put all of our focus and attention in the corporate market where we play such a critical role and a unique one. More from my interview with Citibank's Jane Frazier after the break. Let's talk about Brazil. Um, it, it is Latin America's biggest country by population, by size, by economy, but Brazil has been through it. I mean, just coming out of the longest recession in its history. What's your outlook for Brazil? How, will Brazil, in, in the near term, few years, be able to dig itself up from this? 
it, it's extraordinary to see the Brazilian economy, uh, how resilient it's been um, through everything that's going on. And I think it's a real testimony to the country that with all of this happening, it's being worked through the institutions and not through the streets. Um, and the resilience of the institutions, the focus of the judiciary, the focus of the, the economics minister and his team, um, the police and others, to really drive the country to a more transparent path um, from what has been a very promiscuous relationship between the corporate sector and the government um, is, I think, quite admirable. However, I'm, I'm very, I think in the medium term, the cleanup that's happening right now is a role model for many other countries. The crisis in Venezuela, um, a Harvard professor, Ricardo Hausman, a former Venezuelan cabinet member who you nod, you know well, um, has called on Wall Street banks to sell Venezuelan bonds in their portfolio. He goes as far as to call them hunger bonds. He argues any investor buying them, investing in them is helping finance and prop up the Maduro regime. Does Citi have any Venezuelan bonds in its portfolio? And what do you make of his, the, the, the core of his argument? Um, let me take a step back. We've been in Venezuela for 100 years as a bank operating there. Um, we have shrunk our operations there hugely. We follow the client base. So we go global when they need us. We'll be there. Um, we, have, uh, we took some very difficult decisions over the last few years to radically shrink down our, uh, our operations there and also um, the role that we'll play in correspondent banking. We shut down our correspondent banking operations there and um, in terms of our relationship, we took a risk-based decision to shrink back our relationship with most of the public sector, not only in Venezuela but around the world. That's been hard because it's had ramifications for our people on the ground who every day are concerned about can they get to work safely or home at night, who are worried about whether they can eat and where they're going to find food. Uh, we send aid boxes down. We do everything we can to help our people. Uh, I, we certainly want to try and keep our operations going in Venezuela because we play an important role for some of the companies and some of the individuals there. But we are very, very clear about who we will and won't do business with. Um, and we've been, you know, at the forefront of a lot of the, a lot of the changes that have been going on and uh, through through necessity. Um, so it's it, the Venezuelan bonds really is is the tip of the issue. It's much more in terms of what's the support that you're but it trying like to provide you're the people. To the Venezuelan people in the market. We, we are indeed. Let's talk about reputation, because you were at the center of rebuilding reputation of, of, of city after, after the financial crisis in this country. Uh, we spoke shortly after that. Now it's been, we have a longer uh, lag time after that to process it. What do you think works and what doesn't? Um, hard work works. Um, a focus on the customer works. For us, we went back to just being a bank. We had passed an inflection point where the restructuring that we'd had to do, not just from a financial and a business perspective, but also in terms of our culture, in terms of the whole bank, that we, we were now at a point where we were able to really move forward and look forward um, and, and put all of the energy into the bank in terms of doing what a bank should be doing, which is really enabling progress. And we'd gone back to the basics. So we, we'd exited, frankly, we exited most of the businesses that had been merged together when Citibank and Travelers merged. 
there was really it's only the the fixed income and the the, the Solomon Brothers business mm-hmm. and some of the Smith Barney business that's left from that merger. So we've almost gone back to being the old Citibank together with those two platforms, and and now we've got to play the role of being one of you know really the world's global bank mm-hmm. uh, which is a critical role to play uh, but also one with a culture that has tremendous amount of humanity in it you when when you left the private bank mm. you were sort of reminiscing about it it was you know a job that a lot of people would have loved to have because and then you left it to run city mortgage and deal with all of the fallout settlements uh, with, with the government, et cetera, rebuilding the reputation. I had read that 90% of the people you talked to about this decision said, are you out of your mind, Jane? Yes. Why would you take that job? Then why did you? Um, because you learn from those situations. Um, I, I like learning. Um, I get ADD if I don't feel I'm learning. And so what I saw in mortgage was I hadn't run a business with a huge swathe of people. Um, the private bank was smaller, it was 3,000 people, this was 22,000 mm-hmm. people. And now it's a you new have set of risks, 65. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was a case of, you know, how, how do you lead that? How do you lead a transformation? And um, I wanted to learn that. I also, you know, a different business, a different part of city to understand. And uh, it was a bit of a leap of faith. I remember there were a couple of points I thought, am I nuts? Particularly particularly when everyone else tells you that you're crazy. Um, best decision I ever made. The most I've ever learned was probably in that, in that role and in that job. Because it was a crisis? Uh, because it was a crisis and because I didn't know anything. So you end up, you, you, I didn't know the business at all. And so the leadership skills that you learn, you have to hire people who are better than you and more knowledgeable than you. You have to get the team to work together. And I think it taught me modern leadership skills. That is quite a lot of progress from where you have uh, candidly said you were earlier in your career. I mean, you have called yourself someone who a quote classic woman who doesn't believe she's qualified for the role, that sort of imposter syndrome. And also you've said, I used to believe that I had to be 120% qualified before I did anything. That was certainly not the case when you took this job. You took it anyways and it was the best. And that's given me some more confidence, a playbook, things that went wrong that I now have learned the hard way. Um, so that as I move into different positions, I bring, I bring that with me. Um, and I think I learned, the most I learned is that you don't have to do it all yourself and that you get a great team and you get that team to succeed, that makes you a successful leader. It's not that you're doing it yourself. Um, and particularly today, today is about how do you inspire communities of innovators and you've got to shape the context for them and then let them get to work and do their amazing things. In the old days, it was about telling a group of followers who would then execute. It's a very different management mindset, skill set. And so I've, I've been very lucky by the different roles that I've played at City that I've, I've done that journey. Let's talk about your remarkable story coming up. You made partner uh, one week after giving birth to your first child. Uh, this was not at City. This was at McKinsey, McKinsey yes. a very highly respected uh, consulting firm. So you're standing in the kitchen holding your one-year-old. I know how that goes. I mean, I have tried to mute the phone so many yes. times on a conference call so they won't know I'm home with the baby. 
Um, but this was not that kind of call. This was a great call. What does that feel like to get promoted in such a big way when you're out on maternity leave? I've been told not to get pregnant in the run-up to in the run-up from people no people trying to give me friendly advice it wasn't it wasn't a negative boss i don't know how friendly that is but it was part of the ones then of saying don't you know don't uh don't screw this up don't screw this up why don't you just wait a year wow and um that's not me um and you know I, uh, that was certainly not how I wanted to have my priorities. So it went ahead anyway. And, but I do remember getting the phone call and it was about five o'clock in the evening from the head of the New York office. And it was just chaos in the kitchen. It was, baby was about to be fed, I'm trying to get dinner. My mother had just arrived in. And it was one of those ones where you just wanted him off the phone. Yeah. And so sort of doing, yes, no, that's lovely. Thank you very much. No, honored and thrilled. That's lovely. <laughs> Gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> Did it even hit you at the moment? Um, I was I was really happy, um, but like with all things, you know, when you when you're first time mum, it put you have a different perspective on things, and I think that's I, that's been the best thing that's happened to me is is parenthood because it puts everything in perspective. I think a lot of people listening to this would be surprised to hear that you say truly and and you mean it my career doesn't define me. Um, but you're one of the top-ranking bankers, period, in the world, one of the top-ranking women for sure. Has that ever been a struggle not to let it become your identity? No, never. Um, I, when I started work, I remember seeing, if there were very few women um, in, in banking in Wall Street, and I worked for a great Wall Street firm. But the women there were, you know, they were pretty unhappy. Um, they didn't have family. They didn't have, uh, they just worked all the time. There wasn't a balance and they didn't really have a sense of themselves as a person. And I've, I've been fortunate all the way through um, that, you know, I enjoy having a bit of fun. You work, I, mean, I enjoy you having there. a laugh. I enjoy working with people. I really, I'm passionate about making a difference. And I enjoy that enormously. It's where the energy comes from, the drive comes from. But it's not about the role and it's not about the ambition, the job. I just want to do a really good job at what I'm doing and feel, feel good about that. But if it's wrong at home and the kids are unhappy or my husband's unhappy or the pieces, I'm, I am not at the top of my game in the office. That's true. And so, you know, I remember one time reading a few articles saying, you know, women can't have it all. I think we can, just not at the same time. And does, that's helped guide me. Does that mean you delay some things? Absolutely. You didn't delay parenthood. Um, I didn't delay parenthood and I worked part-time all the way through my partnership at McKinsey when the kids were little. Um, and it, there's different things I've done around that. I'm very comfortable with those decisions. Um, you know, I haven't had that. If you don't define yourself only on your career, you then actually live life to life's timetable rather than to somebody else's. That's pretty empowering. It's, it's very empowering. You, you bring up a bank you worked at a long time ago where you saw these examples of women that weren't having the life you wanted. You left that bank yeah. because of that. 
Um, no, I didn't. I left. Um, I was an analyst program, and it was the same with all of my friends. There was a small group of us that all went through the analyst yeah. programs together, and it's no different at that bank than any of the others. Sure. But it did affect my decision. I went and worked in Spain for a couple of years on the uh, for a Spanish company, mainly because I was the boring Scottish woman in London, and everyone else were these exotic Europeans who were far more glamorous and interesting than I was. I thought, girl, you better get a bit more interesting. So did so Spain I made to make Spain. you more interesting? Spain definitely made me um, appreciate being more feminine. Um, in some ways, quite empowering too. And yeah. um, the Spanish women definitely have the men running around them. So that was quite fun to learn some of that skill set. I like um, that. And a love of colour, which I've had all my life since then. But then, um, I, instead of going back to banking, I went to consulting. I joined McKinsey, yeah. because, partly because I didn't see the women having the balance, and I knew that that was important mm. to me. Of at least, you know, having having some semblance of both lives. It is surprising to hear. I remember interviewing at McKinsey right out of college before I knew that I was going to be a journalist, and I remember how hard those interviews were, and I remember how hard those tests were, and those case studies, and I know how competitive is. I mean, the fact that you could work through McKinsey as partner part-time speaks volumes. And people should, hearing this, should know that that didn't hold you back from where you got. Not at all. In fact, it's ironic. I actually think it made me much, much better because it, it, it got me completely out of the comfort zone at work. Yeah. So I stopped the 120% perfect all the time. And one of my clients told me that I had become a far, far more effective consultant to him mm. because I had far more empathy. And because instead of trying to do everything perfectly, I was much more focused on what really mattered and I really listening hard. And yeah, I, I got more empathy as a mum than I did before, whereas analytic boring machine you're you've also gotten you say very good at saying no and this is something that i've struggled with a lot i just wrote an opinion piece about it for usa today finding happiness in no but it's been really hard for me and i was filling all of my days because i was making the mistake of believing that being busy was being fulfilled and productive and it was, it was the opposite. How did you learn how to say no? Uh, much of my tougher one was saying yes, but we'll come back to that. Um, in terms of no, yeah, again, um, children. Just I, if I wanted to be at home, I just didn't have time to do it all anymore. And so I, I learned to say no and focus much more on the 80-20. Um, and then other times I learned how to use a team more effectively rather than feeling that I had you to had do it to do all it. myself and that I had to learn how to inspire other people and empower other people. And so what's the yes? You said the yes, yeah. that that was more difficult for you? The saying yes to things is much harder. So I often tell the story of how um, in my mid-40s I got a letter from Tiger Woods inviting me to play golf uh, right around the time that was the beginning of the the, Are you a the good issues golfer, it faced. I hope, if you're going to play with Tiger Woods, so, and it was a it was a full ball ahead of a pro am or as part of a pro am he has, and it would be televised. Okay. And my immediate reaction was exactly that: I'm not a good enough golfer to do this. And I went home. My youngest son is a very good golfer. But his, his immediate reaction was, Mum, why didn't they ask me? I'm better at golf than you. And then he absolutely <laughs> told me off for saying, I, I'm going to say no to it. He said, Mum, no one is going to care how you play. 
no one is going to be watching you and you're going to be able to save the rest of your life you played golf with Tiger Woods. Mm. So I wrote back saying that yes I would. In the end it didn't, it didn't end up happening but it took what was then an 11 year old boy to tell a mid 40 year old woman get over the fact that you can't do it absolutely perfectly. A good lesson from your son. Your husband inspires you. Those yeah. are your words. Why? Oh, he's a much better person than me. Really? <laughs> he's great. He, he's incredible at reading people and he's much more patient. Um, he's had an extraordinary life. He's Cuban. Um, he's a very proud American. He grew up in Washington, D.C. Um, but he is much, much better at coaching our kids than I am. I learn all the time that, no, I shouldn't just charge in there and tell them what to do. He's much, much better at, uh, at, at all of those different things than me. And so he's inspiring me as a, as a parent right now. Um, and you know, he inspired me when, uh, when I watched him in the, in the working environment. He also... Values, very strong values. He had quite a career as well. Yes. But at one point, the two of you sat down. You have two children? Yep. Two children. And you had that conversation that so many couples have across this country. Something has to give. Yes. One of us has to pull back. He pulled back. Yes. He, we had the benefit. He was 11 years older than me. So, and he'd been in banking for a long time. He was much more successful and, uh, you know, had worked very hard. And he wanted to have a change. Um, and so you know, we decided, okay, we'll, we'll do the flip. Uh, I'd been part-time when the kids were little, yeah. and now it's going to be a different time. And ha you know, having someone who's a real partner is a huge help. Ursula Burns speaks uh, similarly about her husband, who's also older than her, the former CEO of Xerox, and, and how he pulled back at one point so that she could move forward. I mean, that is the give and take. That yes. is fr it's a frank and difficult conversation to have, but a necessary one probably for any couple at some point. And children. I think it's very hard for the guy because it's amazing how much people judge you. Totally. Did he get um, judged? He did, and he's, very, he's another person who's very secure in who he is and what he's done, and he had a you know, very successful career. Um, and you know, people, people who count in his mind know him for who he is, not what he, what he does that day. Yeah. Um, but I, but it, it takes a very secure man to be able to do that. And I have a lot of respect for him and gratitude because I need the rock at home. Of course. At one point, you, you and your husband moved your family from uh, Europe to the United States, obviously. You came here because you thought that there was more opportunity for women yes. in the United States than Europe. You got to see both. What was lacking in Europe that the U.S. had? The U.S. had to be events like this, as we're at the Fortune. Fortune, the Fortune Women's Conference, where there is just a large number of women who are helping, are mentoring, providing guidance and advice. And in Europe, there's not that same volume of, volume of women. And so for me, at that point in my career, um, I wanted the kids to be able to experience another country, um, and they're half American and half British, but they'd spent, you would think they were 100% British by the accent. They'd spent all their life up to then in London. I thought it was good for them to have a, a new home and experience a different country. And, but for me, it was definitely a, a career move that has been very beneficial. Yeah. My old university's been great um, uh, for graduate school, 
in providing support and there's there is it, it pulls you through here um, and it's and this country is extraordinary in that and I see it when I ran the private bank it was amazing all these successful male entrepreneurs many of them billionaires some of them the most powerful people in their countries you ask them about their daughter and they all wanted their daughters to be in the States, mm -hmm. in country after country after country, because they see it as more meritocratic, more opportunity. And I think this is the hidden power of America. The hidden power of America, powerful words. Confidence. You have called yourself, not my words, your words, a shy, boring, mousy girl. But the headmaster at your school changed that. Yes. What did she say? She, um, she was just a, she was a rocket. Um, it was Australia. My parents had moved to Australia as a teenager. I thought I'd died in heaven. I'd come from a tiny little <laughs> town in Scotland and you turn up in Sydney, Australia. So you know, life's nice, pretty good nice here. Trade. And she was definitely somebody who instilled go for it into the girls. And she took a class of six students each um, for the last two years of school to teach modern history too. Um, we would lie on the floor of her study and she would talk and teach and discuss and she put curiosity into us but she also and a, a curiosity about the world and understanding how different things worked um, and just a demand that we would go out there and do something and make a difference and she was fantastic. Oh. Let's talk about sexism before we wrap up, because uh, Silicon Valley is certainly having a moment of reckoning right now. Uh, we've seen what has played out in Hollywood. Uh, the media industry, my industry, has certainly seen its fair share of it. Have you faced sexism throughout your career? Because I asked Melinda Gates, she didn't hesitate. She said, of course. I faced it my entire career, and I'm still facing it. She goes to some meetings with Bill Gates outside of this country, and some of the leaders don't even look at her. Uh, and this is Melinda Gates. What's your experience been? I think I've been fortunate by the roles I've played that often people, people in many of the different countries you go to where there are not many women, those are the Saudis of this world and others, that once the doors are closed, if you're adding value to them and you, you've, you are the one signing the check or the other pieces, you know, the conversation does change. Mm. Um, I haven't had that much sexism. Um, I've worked in you know, McKinsey as an organization that's pretty extraordinary at really helping everybody. Um, and I've had great mentors. But the other piece I've learned is you turn it round. Um, you, you look at where, is it, where does it become an opportunity. You don't try and fight some of the sexism head on unless it's, re it's against yourself. You do to other people. But I'll, if someone is being sexist to me, I'll call them on it, but I'll say, wow, I didn't realize we're in the 1950s. Well, or, the headlines two years ago when you yes. came into Latin America, right? You yes. just sort of so you've that got, as a you've, challenge. But you, again, I find it's better to deal with it with humor um, in a way that you are empowered rather than that you are threatened by it. And to it. be clear, we're talking about sexism, not sexual harassment. Absolutely sexism. Totally. Sexual harassment is a completely different situation mm -hmm. and one that you need to take a very, very strong stance on. But the unconscious bias um, and the, or, or the conscious bias is something that uh, today in the role I'm in, I can, I can call people on, but I'll call them on it saying, wow, you know, is this a Mad Men episode? Is this the 50s? Or, or, or the, I'm sure you didn't mean it that way, but 
you can say that to me, but if you say that to other people, they're going to think mm. you're... Yeah. So find a diff finding a different approach, calling them on it, but not in a way that, they'll, that actually you're defensive. Courage. You have said the number one piece of advice that you have is have more courage. Who taught you your courage? Oh, I think all the different situations I've been in and the people who sat the other side of the table. Um, so when giving, giving reviews to someone where you've got to tell them what it is that they're not doing well, um, I've learned the courage to tell them straight um, because I would be to try and be nice, but in the end, actually, you're not being nice by not being straight around it. And a few folk, were, well, I remember one person saying, you know, you should have told me that this was a real issue rather than being so nice about it. And so often it's the people the other side of the table well, that have helped people it. people below you have taught you courage as well, yes. because that's who you're giving reviews yes. to. If I, restructuring mortgages, we had to let a lot of people go. The courage there came in and absolutely telling them straight about what did we see coming up in the horizon and that their jobs might well be at risk and what we're going to do about it. But being transparent and being really straight about that um, was really about what sort of person I wanted to be and the values on it. The other piece is, you know, having the courage to take tough decisions. Um, um, I discovered I am courageous on that, and that's, if I think something's the right thing to do, I'll do it. Who is your hero? Oh, no, it is my, it is my husband. <laughs> he's, I think he's pretty extraordinary. And finally, Jean, um, this is a question that I never asked before I had children, but I think it's maybe one of the more important questions, and that is, when it's all over and you've said your career doesn't define you, what do you want your children to say about you one day? Oh, I made a difference. I, that I had humanity. I instilled humanity into what I did um, and made sure there was soul and made a difference. Uh, I, you know, I'd love them to say that in emerging markets, we made a difference by getting more people included in the growth that's going on in emerging markets. And hopefully you can do the same in the States and other parts of the world in the future. Jane Frazier, thank you very much for being with us. And come back when that CEO role comes around. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.